HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Museum of Food and Drink, sparking curiosity about food with exhibits you can eat. For more information, visit mofad.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Food Without Borders, a show about the intersection of food, politics, and identity. I am your host, Sari Kamen. Today, I have two guests in studio today. With me, I have Krishnan Duray. He is the chair of the NYU Food Studies Graduate Department. He is also the author of The Ethnic Restaurateur and The Migrant's Table. And I also have Sarah Khan, who is a multimedia artist and scholar with a focus on food and culture, and she is the creator of the Migrant Kitchen series. So welcome, Sarah. Welcome, Krishnan Du. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. I am so happy to have you both in studio. And there's a little bit of a reason that I brought you here together, Um, besides the fact that you're both brilliant and you have more degrees (laughs) combined than like anybody. I've never met. But not much common sense. <laughs> I, I don't know about that. <laughs> um, you're both going to be on a panel together next month at MOFAD, who happened to be our sponsor today. I didn't plan Perfect, that, yeah. but it worked out really well. Talking about immigration policy and street vendors and food and all sorts of different topics that are, are very much in line with uh, what we talk about on this show. So I thought it would be cool to kind of um, preview that panel a little bit and then give you a chance to warm up for it in this in this context. And I thought it might be interesting to sort of start the conversation by talking about how different past immigration policies may or may not have affected our food system today and kind of influenced the way we eat without us even realizing it. Do you want me to go first? Yeah, you yeah. go ahead with the policy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I no. knew that Chris would be able to speak to this. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, I think uh, let's, without getting too uh, pedantic, let's start with the 1882 uh, Chinese Exclusion Act, right? Where uh, I would say the way it shaped uh, our, uh, the way we eat and uh, 
the uh, labor market in uh, agriculture and in restaurants is kind of uh, unique. Uh, in one way, it stopped Chinese migration, labor migration, and the whole point was to stop Chinese labor migration. And because the policy came about after kind of nationalist, white nationalist mobilization through trade unions, in fact, at the end of the 19th century. Uh, but one inadvertent consequence of that was as the Chinese Exclusion Act stopped uh, what was called within quotes coolie labor, uh, what it opened up was Chinese immigration through entrepreneurship and as managers. So in some ways, what we see in the United States that the number of Chinese restaurants really exploded as a consequence, as a peculiar consequence of the Chinese Exclusion Act. It, though it made the lives of Chinese workers much more difficult, it opened in some ways, uh, gave an opening uh, in the direction of Chinese entrepreneurship, from which we get Chinese um, uh, restaurants and also uh, laundromats, by the way. Mm. And both are associated, if you think about it, with kind of feminized labor, which is largely what white working class folks were not willing to do, women's work, cook and clean. So in some ways, Asian labor was then pushed towards this largely feminized um, work of uh, cooking and cleaning. From that, we get Chinese restaurants and Chinese laundromats spreading, in fact, from the West Coast to the East Coast. One of the few things that moves from the West Coast to the East Coast in American history along with the Chinese expansion through the railroads, the transcontinental railroad, and you end up with uh, Chinese restaurants and laundromats almost in every major city in the United States. So that's one. Um, should I stop? No. Okay. <laughs> the other one is, uh, say, a very dramatic difference that we see right now yeah. is the Heart Seller Act of 1965, uh, the Immigration, which reformed Immigration Act as a consequence of the Civil Rights Movement. Mm -hmm. After the civil rights movement, it became important to change American laws, uh, 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 not on the basis of race, that is, meaning that we could no longer, American law could no longer exclude people on the basis of race. So American immigration law that had basically excluded Asians, uh, what was called the Bard Zone, mostly included all of Asia from about, say, 1882 it starts. We have, we tried to exclude uh, Japanese through an agreement, uh, uh, what is called the Gentleman's Agreement in the early 20th century, because Japan could not be bullied as China could be, because Japan was already an emergent power. It had already defeated Russia in the 1904 uh, war. Uh, and so, uh, but there were series of exclusions. Uh, Indians were excluded. Indians came to be seen as not white mm -hmm. and increasingly excluded. So the exclusion continues un until about the Second World War. And because the Second World War, the United States had to make allies with other nations, it was slowly immigration was opened up, the laws began to be changed, but most of it changed substantially after the civil rights movement. So in some ways, people like me could come to the United States legally only because of the civil rights movement, which ended this barred zone. And what, what that transformed was, was what, what I see as the latest wave of migrants from Latin America, from all of Asia. So if you think about labor in the food system today, of the 21 million people in the food and fiber system, okay? Today, they're mostly Latin Americans and mostly Asians, okay? And that became possible because of 
the uh, deracialization of the Immigration Act of 1965, and it has also shaped our palates. Think about the Latin American influences and the Asian influences on our palates, uh, which has basically been uh, shaped by immigrants uh, from these parts that came in, especially from Asia, that came in after 1965. So today, I mean, think about Japanese food. Think about, of course, continuing to think about Chinese food or Indian food, Vietnamese food, Thai food, okay? All these things became available largely in immigrant communities. And these immigrant communities uh, kind of boomed after 1965. And a lot of this food was often directed towards immigrants of the same group, And then they started facing outwards. And that is an interesting history in American history where some cuisines have entered through these immigrant communities and then looked outwards to expand business. And some have always looked outwards, like uh, Indian immigration after 1965. Indian restaurants after 1965 have largely looked outwards. That's why, for instance, Indian restaurant names have always been in English. Uh, but if you look at the earliest Indian restaurants, they were probably in Harlem. Uh, they were feeding Bengali uh, sailors. Probably the first Indian restaurants in, you know, in, um, in, in New York were most probably run by Bangladeshi, Sileti, uh, at that point, and, and in Harlem, partly because of racial segregation. So there's a beautiful book uh, Vivek Bald has written called Bengali Harlem, which looks at these kind of 20 families, and it's absolutely fascinating. You already see the Bangladeshi hot dog vendor uh, in the early 20th century. And today, of course, the largest number of hot dog vendors in New York City are Bangladeshi. So the com- most common languages among street vendors in New York City are Bengali and then some of the West African languages. Of course, it's Arab, Arabic to uh, Egyptian uh, street vendors. And you also have um, uh, West African, uh, Nigerian uh, street vendors. Let me stop. These are two good examples of, examples. of where laws have shaped uh, two things. Uh, both the labor force that goes into the making of uh, uh, both agriculture and in the making of the food, kitchen labor and agriculture, and by, in fact, uh, absorbing, incorporating these varied people into our communities, it has also changed our palates. And which is very, I mean, I personally find that fascinating, democratic, opening. I think no other culinary culture in the world is as open as the American culinary culture, which has sometimes been criticized precisely because for being so open. And of course, there's always also been uh, nationalist hysteria against it, against Germans, of all people, who are one of the largest number of immigrants coming into the United States in the 19th century. And in fact, before that, uh, Ben Franklin was complaining about too many Germans in Pennsylvania. People who we call uh, the Pennsylvania Dutch are really Deutsch, so they are the Germans. And of course, ironically, that's uh, uh, Donald Trump's heritage, uh, Trump, uh, which is a Germanic family, who were the target of anti-immigrant antipathy in the 19th century. But that's also another American story, which is yesterday's immigrant is today's nativists. Right. Um, Is that the policy that's giving Trump's travel ban all the the issues in court? Uh, Which policy? The one that you just spoke of that you can't discriminate based on 
race. I exactly, mean, Muslim, race yeah. or religious identity. Mm-hmm. So in some ways that has to be sorted out. That's why when he tried to first tried to make it a Muslim ban, mm-hmm. and then he was advised by Giuliani not to call it a Muslim ban because of that's not so much that law, but it's the separation of church and state, yeah. basically, right? And that you cannot target or prefer one religion over the other. And uh, then he turned it into uh, 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 a travel ban, and now he's gone back to saying this is political correctness and he wants to call it uh, a, tra- a travel Well, he keeps ban. calling it a ban on Twitter yes, when, exactly. when the courts yeah. so are we'll trying see to argue how it's not it, a ban. Yeah, how it, how it works out in the court, yeah. Yeah. Um, what about just uh, anti-immigrant? I mean, those are all those are all positive examples of how our palettes were expanded due to immigration. But uh-huh. what about the, like the more pejorative examples where not necessarily because of policy, but because of like nativist rhetoric, um, Americans yeah. were biased against certain foods? I mean, a contemporary example would be like the whole freedom fries, you know, when Bush was in office. So I would see I would say the the uh, the one part of the American palate that is fascinating is that I find is that it is open it absorbs all this, but it often absorbs it, all these difference in a subordinate position. So uh, as, as uh, I've shown in my, in my work in um, the ethnic restauranter, Americans have a tough time paying good money for what are seen as ethnic food. Mm-hmm. Okay, so for the longest time, it had to be continental. It had to be continental was some idea of uh, American imagination of an elite uh, European cuisine, okay, which is largely the luxury hotel cuisines of Europe, and then it became French cuisine, and uh, and and it took the longest time. I'll give you two examples. Today we think very highly of them. Japanese cuisine. Mm-hmm. When you say, when you see, there's a beautiful sociological work of a, of a sociologist working in Hawaii uh, with Japanese immigrants, and he's ber- uh, and he, he he listens to and he, he he interviews the first generation and second generation, the Ise and the Nisei generation, and uh, they say the parents say, oh, our children go to American school and they learn in American school how terrible Japanese food is, how unhealthy it is. We don't drink any milk. We don't dr- eat enough meat. Uh, and of course, these were all conceptions of good, hearty, Western, white, racialized uh, foods. We are supposed to be drinking all this milk and eating all this meat. Uh, and Japanese parents are absorbing that because the teachers are criticizing the students who are Japanese students, and which is astounding that Japanese food would be considered not good enough. And so that so the parents were. Uh, changing their palates, trying to change their palate, introduce more meat, introduce more uh, milk into the Japanese-American palate so that it was not disdained, okay? Which, of course, we have now flipped it around. Japanese live some of the longest lives in the world, and partly because, in fact, of what they eat uh, and the fermented foods, the fish, uh, 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 the, the seaweed, etc., etc., all the micronutrients and, uh, and antioxidants uh, in it. And the other example uh, uh, that would surprise uh, uh, some people would be how Italian food was disdained. Mm. Uh, The uh, nutritionists and um, uh, home economists and uh, uh, some of the do-gooders of the early 20th 20th century uh, were in fact complaining that only if we could stop the Italians from eating their Italian food, which is so garlicky, so spicy, which is what gives them all this craving for drinking alcohol. That's why we have an alcohol problem, (laughs) which got aligned, in fact, with the prohibition movement, which was very strongly led by, in fact, white women. Right, but it's always a marketing campaign. And so in some ways, so you see that, and of course today it has flipped. Today, uh, Today the most expensive 
uh, restaurants in in Sydney, New York City are in fact Japanese. Uh, so th- and the Mediterranean diet is hailed as being the healthiest absolutely. way. To and eat. we have upscaling of upscaling of uh, uh, Italian food, yeah. which is fantastic. But what you have is you have uh, initial subordination. My theory is if there are poor immigrants coming in from any place. We have a very difficult time imagining their cuisine as either good or interesting or upscale. Mm-hmm. And that's changing with our omnivorousness right now. It is, I think, we're in the middle of that transition. And it happened, with, say, with Japanese is a good example, Italian. Today, of course, a lot of high-end places are, in fact, the new American, uh, Mediterranean, and, of course, Japanese influence, strong Japanese influence in plating, for instance, which happens with since Paul Bocuse with... Um, with uh, uh, the Nouvelle uh, French cuisine uh, and, uh, and of course, uh, the hearty, healthy simplification that has become our kind of uh, tropes now that have yeah. become important. So it's an it's example of how our evaluation of cuisine changes over time with different waves of immigrants. Like I would say we still have a problem paying uh, a high price, say, for Mexican food. Still, it's changing. We are right in the middle of the transition. We are beginning to see interesting upscale um, uh, Mexican uh, restaurants. Uh, uh, Still very difficult with Central American. It has happened a little with Peruvian, which is another kind of a source of circulation of of ideas of what is good food, uh, what is worth paying the money for, and a lot of it is shaped by uh, which cohort of immigrants came, at, uh, came in at what point of time and what kind of upward mobility there is. Uh, so I'll give you another group of immigrants, like Jewish immigrants, Eastern European Jewish immigrants, who are largely urban working class migration and some professional migration. And what, with, with the Jewish immigration, Eastern European immigration, you have another, another uh, interesting thing. The upward mobility was so quick and so strong because of literacy already, partly because of the religion, partly because of the importance of literacy in the Jewish community, that the second generation could pick up English very fast. And we had big public institutions like the City University system in New York that allowed for upward mobility. In fact, City University of New York historically guarantees the fastest rate of upward mobility of any university system, even today even today. All other university systems mostly confirm confirm <laughs> your location. You come from the rich, you stay rich. Okay? CUNY is one of the few systems in the world that ha- promises the ha- highest form of upward mobility. And as Jews moved up into the professions, law and, and medicine, mm-hmm. in fact, very few of, few of them were either cooking or stuck cooking. So in fact, it is very difficult to find in general a large number of Jewish-run restaurants anymore, and that is partly because of upward mobility of it. So anyway, so I should stop. I'm going on probably too much. Well, I'd love to hear, um, Sarah, you do a series called the Migrant Kitchen Series. What Can you explain what that is and talk a little bit about your work with that? Well, the, uh, the Migrant Kitchen Series that I put together uh, and conceived of is actually something that's been, been simmering uh, for many years and is kind of the natural progression of, of my life's work. And uh, I have a background in public health and then another master's in nutrition and then a, a PhD in a discipline that we call um, uh, ethnobotany. I prefer to ca- call it the, the study of people and plants mm. and or uh, the study of traditional ecological knowledge systems. And I did a lot of my work in South Asia, 
specifically in India, looking at Ayurveda and the treatment um, and how how it was used to treat what we call type 2 diabetes. And then I did a comparative um, with traditional Chinese medicine and spent some time in Shanghai. But the impetus for migrant kitchens is, is really comes down to a couple of things that I value very much, which is um, making visible the invisible, specifically women and, and women and their foodways and their knowledge and, and that gender domain that we don't value uh, often culturally in many cultures all over the world. And then um, wanting to, with that feminism in mind, wanting to make visible the work of everyday people, in particular women, and how they contribute so much. And uh, I had finished my second Fulbright in South Asia, and I was coming back, and I'm finishing a series of short films on women farmers in India to show that diversity. But when I came back, I really wanted to explore Queens more deeply. Um, I had already done a short film on this wonderful African-American woman farmer um, down south uh, who was a jazz singer turned organic farmer. I'll, I'll give you guys a link to That's that fine. at a later date. It's more of, a, of a, an interview with her. Um, and I focused also on a Native American pecan farmer down south. And I can, I can give you all the links yeah. to these, but these were done many years ago. Um, But I wanted to, in a political climate that was more and more xenophobic, it was even more important for me to um, explore Queens. 160 languages are spoken there. If I can't travel very far, then I will certainly happily travel the number seven train and the many other trains to the 53 neighborhoods that are there uh, to go a little deeper. And so um, with a bunch of, of, of... patrons and backers and grants, including Culinary Backstreets, who you're going to be highlighting, I think, in a, in a few episodes, yeah. um, the Asian American Writers Workshop, Asian Women's Giving Circle, um, Buenas Obras, and then another patron, Susan Sillins, um, I was able to create and, and put out a series of short films. And, and going, or actually beginning with migration, and even before migration, I, I wanted to first pay homage to the, uh, the, the first inhabitants of this land, which is our Native American and indigenous people. So even before I did the, the, the first films, I wanted to talk about what did Queens look like before mm. colonization. Mm. It was rich from a biological diversity perspective, from a cultural diversity perspective, from a linguistic perspective in terms of Native American languages. And so just to remind ourselves of, wait, you know, what was here before me? What land do I stand on? Can I ask a question? Um, of course. Yeah. <laughs> how did you recover it? Like, how did you go about it? There's a great, you know, the Manahata Project? Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're a great resource. Um, I went down to the Native American Museum uh, downtown. I accessed some books. And I just wanted for my own education, before even, it's almost like a, not a rite of passage, but it's kind of, what you have to do. I mean, before I even talk about my own relationship to migration, I need to say, who was here before me? And what did they do? And, and another thing that we showed in the series is that when you, when you colonize, when you take over a place, if, you, if you're smart, you don't destroy what's there. You build upon what's there. And you can see that in just the roadways that we use today in Queens. A lot of the major highways were Native American trade routes. 
and and all those memories are there, and and we stand literally stand on those memories. So I wanted to pay homage to that, um, but then I also wanted to pay homage to our own internal refugees in this country, which were our African-American brothers and sisters who underwent what we call the Great Migration um, from the South to the North. Um, I'm reading right now uh, Colson Whitehead's Underground, and uh, it's incredibly it's incredibly moving. It's a book that I think we should all read, but just hearing those stories of, of migrations, of, of escape, um, is, again, my responsibility. And also, as Krishnandu had stated earlier, um, you know, I'm here, he's here because of the civil rights movement. And so, again, to want to represent that and then show that, hey, in Queens, when the sun went down because of the Negro motorist travel books, there was a place that people knew where they could go to rest their head, to get something to eat, uh, to hear music. And so I found that one of those, one of those many places I was able to find, and I interviewed a woman, and that was also part of one of the stories in one of the short films. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we get into, um, you know, the 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 nineteen post nineteen sixty five uh, diversity and growing diversity of Queens, and and just showing those stories. And then I spent a lot of time with the Street Vendor Project, and with two um, in particular wonderful community organizers, Elise Golden and Basmaid, who used to work at Street Vendor Project, who did really great work, especially in Corona, among Latin American street vendors. And um, and so we got, I got to hang out with Luis Alfonso Marin, who sells arepas on 80th and Roosevelt, and then Evelia, uh, who makes a thousand tamales a night, wow. uh, two thousand on the weekend. She works with a, a crew that she's put together, but she sells her tamales and and um, and so just to make visible uh, regular people working really hard and showing what I think is. Um, extraordinary strength and beauty in the midst of more and more violence and hatred and and resentment towards uh, immigrants or anyone who we consider other. Yeah. Can you speak to anyone individually um, through your work, either of you? I I mean, Chris, you've been involved with Street Vendor Project as well. What does it feel like, you know, being in Queens is one thing and it's, it's wonderful to walk through and taste all the different foods, but... How has the the current administration? I don't know about specific policy necessarily, but certainly sentiment um, just affected, like the I guess the collective consciousness of of what be the street vendors. Can I? I want to add something because one of the when I started the whole migrant kitchens in Queens, I first went to Steinway uh, in in Astoria, and I spent a lot of time there walking the streets. This is now back in 2015. Mm in the fall of 2015. And I walked and walked, and um, I pride myself on, on having abilities of knowing how to hang out <laughs> and, um, and, and how to uh, uh, learn about a place, hopefully with some humility and with a lot of play and gaining a lot of weight because you just eat at all these places and mm-hmm. interact with people. And it's a predominantly, or there's a large Arab population there, and having studied Arabic... Um, Having knowing enough to make a fool out of myself so to charm people and then they want to feed me even more and talk to me, I thought, let me do this. And so I went and I did my due diligence and nobody wanted to, people were respectful, they were kind, but they were not, they were not open to me. 
and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, have I lost my mojo? You know, what's happening? <laughs> and these are these are street vendors. You were Not talking? street no. vendors. Okay. These okay. were a Lebanese establishment, a, a Moroccan place where they sold chubs um, baldi, uh, which is their uh, whole wheat handmade bread. Another Palestinian guy who made merguez, and the shop was owned by an Egyptian gentleman. And I went back and forth and back and forth and returned and returned, and it just wasn't happening. Um, and by that time, I had gone to a whole bunch of street vendor project meetings and started going to the ones in the among the Latino community. And I thought, you know, the Latino community, what I've seen is is not afraid. They are organized in a really active way, and they know their rights. I'm not abandoning this, but let me go and do that for a while. Number one, to see if I can still do it, because I was a little... I was, I was Shaken. Yeah, yeah. And um, so I went and I did that. And I'll, and I'll go full circle now. My, the last of the nine short films that I've done, the, the most recent one, is called um, Surviving Surveillance, Catering to America. And when that happened in Astoria, I did my due diligence and realized... And this is, you know, again, 2015... Um, and you had to go back to post 9-11, and you had to go back to um, informants, um, informants from the communities who were now working with various um, NYPD and FBI to um, entrap people. And so the communities that I was trying to get access to had already seen a lot of people like me, and they didn't trust me, and they didn't trust me for good reason. So the last film is about a Pakistani woman named Shahina whose son was entrapped by the NYPD. Her son has uh, borderline learning disabilities, and he is representative of many, many, many people who have... um, issues around their character in terms of abilities or disabilities, criminal records, and or histories of drug abuse. This isn't Shahina's son, but they target those people and then entrap them. And so one of the ways she survived was by catering. Uh, She started a catering company, a small catering company, in order to um, uh, survive with her son now in jail for serving a 30-year sentence. So if that's how policies on a human scale might be and are affecting communities in a, in a very large way. So um, the Migrant Kitchens continues to kind of um, use the food um, to then talk about these other, uh, what I think are very socially relevant backstories um, to where we're going and how we're treating our immigrant communities. Yeah. We're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back with Sarah Khan and Krishnan Ray. Hi, I'm Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. We all know and love Chinese takeout dishes like General Tso's chicken and egg rolls. But here's the thing. Even though we call it Chinese food, it's not like the food you'd find in China. What's the story behind this cuisine? And how did it become so popular that you can find a Chinese-American restaurant in nearly every town in the country? 
The answers may surprise you. Visit the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn and see our newest exhibition, Chow, Making the Chinese American Restaurant. Chow engages visitors with compelling accounts of how Chinese immigrants overcame racism and created Chinese American cuisine. Discover the science behind the flavors of your favorite takeout dishes, feast on rotating tastings developed by the country's most talented Chinese American chefs, and try your hand at writing your own fortune, which will be baked into actual cookies by a 1,500-pound fortune cookie machine. But what better way to learn, connect, and eat? You can visit Chow at the Museum of Food and Drink on Fridays through Sundays from noon to 6. Tickets and more information can be found at mofad.org. Hi, I'm Patrick McAndrew, host of Why Food on Heritage Radio Network, a show about creators, entrepreneurs, and visionaries in the food industry and the stories behind their success. Tune in on Thursdays at 2 p.m. to journey through stories marked by triumphs, failures, and insights. Support my show and all of Heritage Radio Network's programming. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to become a member today. I had a feeling you'd come back to me And that you would be more than just a fantasy My heart began to sing When I noticed all the sparkles and the shimmer and we're back. You're listening to Food Without Borders on Heritage Radio. I'm your host, Sari Kamen, and I'm in studio today with two guests. I have Sarah Khan and Krishnan Duray. Um, we're talking a little bit about street vendors, immigrant cuisine. Uh, Chris, you had something you wanted to say about sort of what's going on in the world of, of street vendors and immigration policy. Yeah, no, uh, what Sarah raised is one aspect of it. And mm-hmm. also what's interesting about New York City is uh, we have a very good uh, street street vendor advocacy organization, and in fact, quite a sympathetic mayor and city council right now in terms of uh, uh, a legislation, uh, a bill has been introduced, uh, uh, the Street Vendor Modernization Act, that is supposed to raise the number of street vending permits, uh, and uh, it has a substantial support, but it has gotten stalled. Uh, and part of it, why I raise it, is I think what's going to happen in spite of this larger context of uh, nativism, different cities are doing interesting things. And at city level, uh, politicians are doing a lot more interesting things than just the big negative picture. I think that's where I have found, I find hope. Absolutely. In cities uh, mm-hmm. where you have a kind of a, a county level and city level, uh, uh, and in this case, uh, uh, advocates and sympathizers and sympathizers coming together and we are pretty close to shifting to a little more expansive uh, a pro-immigrant uh, uh, legislation increasing the number of uh, uh, in New York City in New York City mm-hmm. uh, uh, the vendor permits decreasing the amount of fines like these street vendor often get fined used to get fines a thousand dollar fine mm-hmm. I mean that can destroy you. So that has come down, partly because of advocacy. Evelia was arrested 16 times over the lifetime of her vending until she got a permit. And that's in the short film. It's Anthony Bourdain covered it, too, in the Queen's episode, which I was happy that they did. um, And that's, in fact, a good point, too. I mean, what I like about you can have a celebrity status like, say, Anthony Bourdain. He, his politics has been very progressive in Mm -hmm. terms of street vending. And, and, uh, uh, and those are important figures, and that has become... I mean, that also plays with the search for the next best thing, the next authentic thing. But it can be turned into good food. Pursuit of good food can be made to be an ally of good livelihoods of poor people. Yeah. And that's important. 
Um, I want to talk about that, but what about just like deportation fears? Is that affecting the street vendor community since there's such a, you know, that's in such a heightened state right now? I, I don't I don't have direct information. Okay. Sean Basinski would be the perfect person to talk about that. Yeah. Uh, in a broad sense, but not in a kind of a immediate narrow sense other than targeted communities like right. Sarah was talking about. There is a deep anxiety yeah. in uh, Muslim American communities, you know. Uh, about and I think in undocumented, but also undocumented in, in, in undocumented communities, Absolutely. not Absolutely. just Muslim, but anybody who's undocumented. So Roosevelt Avenue, where you have many, uh, for lack of a better word, I don't like using the word, but um, illegal vendors uh-huh. using street carts. Um, you know, for for many weeks, I'd be up at four in the morning going there and just kind of paying attention. And I need to go back now and see what it looks like because I I can very well imagine that. Um, People are staying in. I would think they'd want to be less visible. Yeah, less visible. If and you, you know have what's any fascinating is in LA, it led to a progressive law yep. by the city to, in fact, not make it a felon so that they don't break the law, so that they can't be deported on the basis of that violation. Yeah. So it, in some ways, it tells you when you have the will and the, and the political mobilization, in L.A. it was used, this very threat of deportation was to use to change the law in progressive direction so it doesn't uh, allow uh, 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 the state to basically uh, target vulnerable populations. Mm, really so in L.A. it was, and ended up in a, is a terrific example. Mm-hmm. So the possibilities. Um, but yeah. back to that, you know, you brought up the whole Anthony Bourdain and sort of the quest for authenticity, which I think brings up the larger <clears throat> issue of appropriation. And there's there's a lot of that in the news right now in terms of food. Um, I don't know if you heard, there was two women in, in Portland who I guess spoke very openly and flagrantly about how they had appropriated different Mexican women's uh, recipes for their burritos and then opened a burrito shop. Portlanders got wind of this and they were forced to shut down. And so now there's been this larger conversation that even Rick Bayless has been a part of as as a white Mexican chef. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I, there's a, there are a couple of things I just want to throw out there. Mm-hmm. I'm very wary of the word authentic. I'm very wary of the word ethnic. And then I often think that um, the most privileged are the most blind to their privilege. And um, a very good way to walk in this world is to be constantly aware of what you bring to the table. And um, when you are from the dominant culture that makes decisions or determines or uh, uh, when you're from the dominant culture, um, one tends to be very blind. And, and I actually I have a dear friend, Kaylin Sullivan Two Trees, um, a wonderful mentor and woman. And, and she for decades has told me and we've talked about the disability of privilege and um, and how 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 folks in positions that they don't realize aren't aware of what they bring to the table, um, can be so blind that they're blindsided when um, constructive criticism comes up about how they choose to walk in the world. That's not to say there are not two uh, extreme sides to this that that the media loves. Um, And I think there's very much that middle ground of how do you choose to walk in the world? No one's saying don't cook another food, at least I'm not. But how do you do it? How do you appropriate it? Um, what privileges that do you have that allow you to even travel there and do that? And you can go down the line. And it's not policing. It's being mindful. It's being respectful. It's being aware of, of what you bring literally to the table. Yeah. What would you say, Krishnandu? Yeah. So, in fact, one, I've tried 
to not get involved in in the discussion partly Sorry. because no, no, some <laughs> of it is shrill uh, uh, shrill exactly. too shrill and and is the nature of maybe the media ecology now mm-hmm. that it's very easy to get into a shrill fist fight rather than say okay so w- what does it make me think and but it also has forced me to clarify my own thinking okay mm-hmm. so i'll say i'll say i i think about it in a couple of directions one is the question of cultural appropriation let's start with the example i think those two women specifically in portland did it in an obnoxious way and and then got kind of it got inflated and then it got polarized okay and in some of those cases i find sometimes the cure is worse than the symptom and i'll explain i'll try to explain what i mean by that it's a symptom the whole discussion about culinary appropriation is a symptom of something that's important which is the relationship between culture and power okay and it's worth thinking about okay and worth engaging with and it shapes my thinking it changes my thinking i'll i'll give you an example i have never uh, uh engaged with for instance african american cuisines partly because of area of expertise you know i already have the whole world of all immigrants who are not <laughs> african right so it's it's, it's partly lot, containing yeah. containing my expertise so mm-hmm. i have not i have not uh, done any specialized research on native american cuisines and for instance those are do, two ways of very interesting ways of drawing line i find having read the history of american food having engaged with it there are almost three different attitudes we have developed there's a remarkable invisibility of how much we owe in terms of cultural knowledge to native americans okay which is of course what sarah was saying about queens and paying that first debt and acknowledgement and how how much we have destroyed and how much of it is not replicated because of questions of literacy and simple domination and destruction of the people and the culture okay that's one level okay it's almost like it's not even appropriation it is just destruction of that culture okay and appropriation without even acknowledging it from the turkey to the pumpkin to the beans to cranberries to what kind of crucial parts of it and no gesture of acknowledgement towards it other than caricatures one day a week maybe thanksgiving okay it's worth thinking about that and the second again sarah mentioned it uh, and uh, 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 and i have not thought about it seriously but i'm engaging with it uh, a little more partly because of this discussion on cultural appropriation is african americans they cooks and chefs so uh, in the um, jemima code the book uh, on which is a fantastic bibliographical book on african american cookbooks so here's a, here's a data there are 100000 recipe collections printed in the united states in about 200 years out of that only 200 have african american names on it though african americans dominated the trade in different parts of it on the railroads and of course in the south in the north in the cities okay so he, there is really i would call that real cultural misappropriation mm-hmm. and you often have you don't get you get one african american cookbook okay i think 1826 robert roberts which is about uh, a way uh, instructing servants how to serve no a food and how to cook the food etc and there right there you see in some ways appropriation or 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 what what uh uh, uh william forson uh, uh 
called uh, calls uh, uh, culinary malpractice or okay? erasure. Yeah, absolutely, complete erasure in that sense. And in fact, you see, and, and this is the essay by John Egerton uh, in, in that book. Uh, uh, people should read that book, uh, uh, The Jemima Code, uh, and by Barbara Haber, uh, who uh, say how in some ways these cookbooks are written by, in fact, eliminating the black woman from the narrative, narrative completely. And how do we know? We know it partly where some white women, they, I forget the name of the woman in Kentucky who wrote a beautiful cookbook, and she acknowledged all the black women who were part of that knowledge system. Okay, And they all played a role in the other cookbooks that we have, you know, uh, uh, that come out in the early part of the 19th century, but that kind of invisibility. And the third, so I draw a line there. And a third one, what my work has mostly focused on, which is immigrant foodways and immigrant uh, populations coming into the United States. And you have not so much invisibility, in fact. You don't have erasure. You have subordination. Mm -hmm. Okay? So I, I'm beginning to organize my thinking. Maybe I'll change it after a point. And with that frame in mind, I would say what I mean by that is cul this culinary appropriation discussion raises important and interesting questions about culture and power. I wish it wasn't this shrill that it forces us to, in some ways, I think there are two values we value equally. One is, I would say, intimacy with other, other communities. Okay? There would be no romance, there'll be no love, there'll be no urban culture if we don't have some notions of intimacy with another. That's one value. Okay? The other value is integrity of the other okay on what criteria on what grounds do we build that intimacy okay just as i would not like to what do you have, mean by intimacy uh, so in this case as i would not like to build a relationship say with a woman because i'm a man there'll be different values different locations in the power structure mm -hmm. okay completely on my terms it would be a wrong relationship it won't be a particularly interesting relationship to build an intimate relationship with someone else completely on my terms, okay? So what I see this culinary appropriation discussion is doing is forcing us to think, how are we going to build relationships of partnerships, progressive partnerships, okay, of intimacy across communities without getting ghettoized in our communities, and yet do it with a certain attention to integrity of those communities, of maintaining some of those limits and boundaries. Okay, so for instance, in a sense, I would I would say it would be a very uninteresting relationship if I say, okay, I'll have a romance with you, and but it'll all be on my terms. Yeah. Okay. So how do you build intimacy? And this, of course, across communities, we are talking about not individual relationship. But I think that's an analogy worth attending to. And this question of culinary appropriation, I think, should move towards some of that, which is how do you build bridges across communities, barriers, while paying some attention to questions of integrity. So I think integrity is probably a lot more useful term than authenticity. But authenticity gestures towards that, in fact. Yeah, it's a lot to unpack. Um, thank you. We have to 
start wrapping up. Unfortunately, I wish we could stay here all day. Sarah, tell us how to keep in touch with you and um, find your work. You can find me uh, on my website, Sarah K. Khan, and Khan is spelled is spelled as in Genghis or Chaka, <laughs> depending on my mood. And uh, my Twitter handle is at Sarah K. Khan, and so is my Instagram handle. What's your mood right now? Are you Genghis or Chaka? I'm in a Genghis kind of mood. Cool. So. No, actually, Chaka Khan. We're going to go dancing. So. Oh, good. Yeah. Okay. We'll transition to Chaka Khan. And, Chris, how can we stay in touch with the work that you're doing and mm. the books that you're publishing? And the- uh... Google, search me. Okay. Uh, Steinhardt is the website. Krishnandu Ray should come up. It's a slightly unusual name. Other yeah. than there's a Not soccer, so many soccer player in Bengal. Yeah. He comes up too often. Yeah, and the Migrant Kitchens continues. Um, stuff is coming out through the Asian American Writers Workshop. Um, the Indian Women Farmers films yeah. are being made, short graphic animations showing the diversity of of South Asia Fun. Um, and um, we've got something cooking in Fez in the old city of Fez um, oh, around cool. food and culture for the next couple of years so stay tuned and in fact my work is moving more towards like comparative work on cities and uh-huh. uh, uh, especially street vendors on law and livelihood and liveliness of Excellent. cities um, and you are both appearing on a panel about yes. immigration, street vendors, policy, food at MoFAD. July 20th. July 20th. Go to MoFAD.org, I believe. Yeah, and there's going to be other great panelists, mm-hmm. too, who I, I very much respect and look forward to being in conversation. That's with. another wonderful opportunity to see you in a room together and yes. continue this conversation. Thank you, Christian Du. Thank you, Sarah, Thank so, you so much, much for, for being here. Us. This is really such a, a special treat to, to have you. Thank you. And have this conversation. A pleasure. Food Without Borders, you're listening on Heritage Radio. Uh, We'll see you next week, Wednesday at 5 p.m. EST. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter, Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.